Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Diecast Move Review Podcast. Today, I was able to interview John Walsh from the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. He's one of the trustees. He's also a filmmaker, a writer, a podcaster. Um, one of the books he has done recently is Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, which we'll be talking about during my interview with him in ex- pretty good detail. Uh, he's done a lot of different films. One of his first films was a documentary, Ray Harryhausen, Movement into Life, which he did back in 1989. And from that point, he was good friends with Ray Harryhausen and has a lot of insight into what Ray was thinking when he did his various movies. He also contributes to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, which has been running since 2016 and is an award-winning podcast. And if you want to know more about Ray Harryhausen, you should be following that podcast also. So I hope you enjoy this interview. The first part of the interview is going to be a little bit about some of the films that John Walsh has done. And most of the interview will be about Ray Harryhausen and his lost movies. I hope you enjoy it. And I know I did. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. And today we're doing a special episode. I'm going to be interviewing John Walsh, who is a director, writer, podcaster. Um, Mr. Walsh is from the United Kingdom, and he has a new book that's coming out. It actually is out. It's been out for a couple months. Ray Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. How are you doing today, Mr. Walsh? I'm very good, Stephen. Feel free to call me John. It's no problem at all. Informality here in London. <laughs> Thank you. I will call you John then. Um, so what, what led you to go down the, to the path of the book? Because we'll start with the book a little bit about like Harry Howes and the lost movies. What was the idea? Well, you know, um, I'd known Ray since I was 18 um, when I was a film student at London Film School. And I used to ask him back in the day in the late 80s, you know, what whatever happened to Sinbad Goes to Mars, Force of the Trojans and so on. And, you know, Ray didn't really want to talk about those films. So in, in later years, when I got to know him better, he, he told me more. And then when I recorded commentaries for his films, because surprisingly, uh, Stephen, he hadn't recorded commentaries for some of his big movies, um, Golden Voyage, Sinbad, Clash of the Titans and so on, First Men in the Moon. And so he'd reveal little snippets of information that around that time I was trying to get this going or this wasn't the first H.G. Wells project I wanted to, to guess, you know. So I kind of thought, I think there's there's more of a story here. Sadly, when Ray died in 2013 then, um, we, we got everything together. And although he kept everything, he didn't keep a, a record, if you will, of everything. So we had to do quite a big stock take of, of what was there and also an assessment of the condition of the collection of all the creatures and that was kind of priority for the first couple of years then we sort of dipped our toe back into the publishing world because there's been quite a few Harryhausen books and we kicked off with Harryhausen the movie posters and and really based on the model of the James Bond poster book which the only thing they have in common is that they're Bond films they've not been painted by the same artist or or anything like that and that's a marvellous book because you see different styles across the decades for the different Bond films. But they do have a certain look. You know, it's a man in a tuxedo with a gun. And yet it's a very popular book. It's, very, it's a big best-selling uh, poster book. So we thought we could do better because Ray's films are so varied and the creatures are so interesting. And the, the posters have so many different variant versions in different countries. Anyway, that was a big success. So we decided, is there another book 
when I spoke to Titan, the publisher, they said, um, you know, they were interested in the Lost Movies book. But it's a harder sell because if you think about Steven Spielberg and the films he's made, we all know E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Close Encounters and Jaws. But would a book about films he didn't make find much of a market? So we, we sat down with the publishers and they asked me how many films do you think qualify under the Lost Banner? And I said, oh, about 45 or 50. Anyway, two years later when the book was published, there was nearly 80 films that qualified under the sort of the Lost Banner. And we had artworks, sketches, as you say, test footage, um, you know, audio. There were, there's so many different sort of mixed media we had that uh, it would seem crazy not to do this as a book. In previous books, um, there'd been footnotes for Raised Lost films and a sort of a, a quick glossary running through a few titles. But for this one, I was determined to find all of the people who were still alive, who were still involved in filmmaking or were still involved with um, artworks and production design, to speak on the record about the Lost films, why they didn't happen, and in some cases, in the case of Chris Foss, the famous illustrator, he finished one of his pieces he started in 1978, especially for the book. I mean, I want to say one thing. You did bring up um, Harry Howes in the, the movie poster book, and I have that one also. And uh, for those that are interested in these books, they're both available on Amazon, if I'm correct. That's right, yes. And sales from the book go to the Foundation's Creature collection fund so for every book that's bought we'll save you know a, a finger of one of the skeletons from jason the argonauts <laughs> or a tooth of the seven-headed hydra it's amazing you could say like oh i bought the books and now i actually saved a tooth <laughs> absolutely yes yeah, like sponsoring um you know when when people sponsor a panda or something I never, I never thought of it that way. It's, it's almost like you could send them a picture, like like a digital picture, like you saved this. <laughs> but um, the, both of those books are excellent. But just before we get into more of the, the lost movies and talk about some of the different movies that could have been or scenes from the movies that he did do that were um, left out for whatever reason, you've done quite a few films yourself in, um, in London, and one of them... Ray Harryhausen movement into life is the one you talked about when you were 18 years old, I believe. I've only able to be able to find yes. a four minute segment of it. Is this film available in its full? I think it's like 15, 16 minutes. Um, yes, it will be eventually. I mean, the foundation has the full version, and we sometimes show it in full at places like Comic Con. Um, we did that in 2018. So for, for special events and for exhibitions and talks, we'll show the whole film. Um, we, we have been in talks with um, uh, Warner Home Video about it being released on a, on a re-release version, possibly of Clash of the Titans in uh, 2021. So there, there will be a chance to see the whole film at some stage. But uh, it's, it's great because it was shot on film and it's, uh, it was shot in Ray's house and it hasn't widely been seen on television. For people who do see it and who know Ray Harryhausen, they think, oh, this is nice. I haven't seen this before. So it feels like a little bit of a lost film. It was originally a student film I, I made when I was at film school. So it's nice that it's it had uh, longevity and have been sort of a value to the, uh, to the foundation. It's been donated now. It's part of the permanent film library of the Harryhausen Foundation. And um, you're not going to talk about your narrator? I don't know how in the world you got Tom Baker to narrate 
the, the movie. I mean, that is just amazing because I'm a big Doctor Who fan, a big Harryhausen fan. So to put the two together is just like uh, manna from heaven. Well, it was. I mean, I was, um, as I say, I was 18 at the time. There's pictures of me at the front of the book um, where I thought I was trying to look older by wearing uh, dark shirts and, and, and it didn't work at all. Um, but I, I had the real sort of, um, I suppose it was um, a, a, a sort of go-getting attitude to think that I'd get someone really big to, to narrate my effectively student film. But there is a connection because when uh, the producers of Doctor Who were looking for a replacement for John Pursley in the early 70s, uh, producer Barry Letts, well, was at a bit of a loss because he'd spoken to lots of well-known actors and he'd spoken to people who were in consideration before. And either they weren't interested or weren't available um, or, or weren't appropriate. You know, people were put forward by agents. And uh, he decided one wet Wednesday afternoon to see the Golden Voyage of Sinbad in Leicester Square, which is a big sort of cinema centre in central London where lots of cinemas converge. And in it, um, Tom Baker was playing Cora in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. So he liked him enough that he went back to his office that afternoon, left a message with Tom's agent. Tom's agent contacted Tom via the landlady at the guest house where he was staying. And he wasn't a, a well-to-do actor at this stage, even though he'd been in feature films. He was working um, doing manual labour on a building site. So running around getting cups of teas for, for builders and so on and mixing up some cement and carrying bricks. So when he came in to the guest house that evening, there was the message from his agent from the BBC about leasing. Later that week, um, he met with Barry Letts and TV history was made when he was cast as Doctor Who and it, it ran in it for, for six years. And of course it transformed things for Tom because he was very successful as Doctor Who and yeah, you know, lots of fame and fortune came with that. Now, I contacted him in 1989, I think it was, when I made my film. And I said to his agent, you know, given that he got his break through Ray Harryhausen, can he come and do this voiceover? All we can offer him is a cup of tea. And uh, not really expecting him to say yes. The agent said, yes, he will be there if, um, if, if you can have your recording equipment ready at this time and this date. And then we did. And we were thrilled. And in came Tom Baker. People said to me, because I'm a big Doctor Who fan as well, don't mention Doctor Who. John, don't mention Doctor Who. Get what you need from him. You know, do the voiceover, be polite, but but don't don't bring up Doctor Who because he's left the role at this stage and you don't want to upset someone. And I thought, well, that's sage advice. I won't mention Doctor Who. So in he came. He was really lovely. He talked about Ray Harryhausen and he talked about how he won the role of Doctor Who. So he brought Doctor Who up. So he opened that door. I went through and we had a, a conversation about it. And uh, it, it was great because um, in the UK at that time, in the late 1980s, there weren't many conventions. So you couldn't get to see people like Tom Baker or stars from other films that easily. So to have him working on my film, offering the narration, the narration, which, by the way, I'd written over and over and over again. And I did it with my voice on the original edit. And I was like, this isn't good enough. And it doesn't do justice to Ray, doesn't do justice to what Tom Baker is going to read. And of course, Tom Baker has one of those wonderful voices that's like spun gold. That the minute he starts to, to, um, to record the lines you've written, you think, wow, I didn't write them as well as this, did I? Um, and of course, you've, you've heard that intro from Tom Baker and it works really well. And it's, it's all kudos to, to Tom for, uh, for doing that. It's marvelous. 
And for listeners wondering, um, when, if you go to our Facebook site, you'll be able to see a little bit of that intro because that's uh, part of the promo you have for your book. You have a little video part of it, and it doesn't it, it doesn't right. work well in the audio format, but I will have it there on the Facebook page, and you will be able to hear a little bit of Tom Baker um, speak and um, and get a little idea of what um, the movement into life, Ray Harryhausen, the movement into life would be like. And again, it'll, it'll whet your appetite, and hopefully it will come out with a re-release of Clash of the Titans, because I know just for that being in there, I'll definitely double down on getting another version of the Clash, just because I want to see the full 15 minutes. <laughs> All right. Now, two, a couple other things that you've done is Monarch and Toy Soldiers. And um, I haven't been able to see the full movie version of Monarch about Henry VIII, I did get to see the trailer of it, and from the trailer, it looked very interesting. It, it was, it was almost—it's like one night of the life, but it kind of reminded me of a Christmas Carol, where he's being visited by these different people, and is he crazy? Is he whatever? But I mean, if you want to talk more about it, I know it got re-released. Yes, yeah, so um, I, I shot that film in 1996, and it got released in festivals. I think it was a few years later, probably the year 2000, 1999, 2000. Um, in more recent years, when my television work had become successful and I'd made a documentary for cinema, I was asked if I'd like to scan my film in HD. So um, we did a full HD scan of the 35mm print for Monarch. It was a film that was shot incredibly cheaply so if people know um sam raimi's wonderful film um, the evil dead my film was even cheaper than that and it doesn't look it and the reason it doesn't is because i was incredibly lucky to work with great actors and i was at the time a kodak sponsored film student and when i left film school kodak was still sponsoring me so it meant i didn't really have to pay for 35 millimeter kodak stock and when you're a kodak sponsored student which i was you could get cameras from people like Araflex for um, what's called a test rate. So instead of a shooting rate, you'd be charged for a camera. You could get them at a test rate, a camera test rate. So I ended up shooting the film incredibly cheaply, but on 35 millimeter. So it gives it this much deeper, more layered look and feel. But it was cheaper than the original Evil Dead. Um, and that film, the original Evil Dead, was shot, I think, on 16 millimeter. So it was good for me to, to do that. It was good to call in all the favors with Kodak and laboratories and so on and, and shoot it very cheaply. Um, the film looked good when it was rescanned and we had great performances, but rather than do something which most people do for a first feature, which is something with gangsters and, you know, that kind of thing, a lot of that was going on in the UK at the time, I decided to do something a bit more unusual. It's a real character in that it's Henry VIII, but it's an entirely fictional scenario where he gets um, waylaid and has to, to, to hold up one stormy night with some of his entourage from the palace in a, in a, in a townhouse, in a, in a manor house in, in the middle of a forest. And as you say, he gets visited by the ghostly amalgamation of his ex-wives. And this is at a time when Henry was coming to the end of his life as well. So it's quite a grim film in that respect. But it was a great exercise. People really enjoyed it. It's on uh, DVD now as well. And... It's, it just shows you what you can achieve with um, very low budget. You know, my contemporaries might have shot something on tape using cheap cameras and so on, and that really wouldn't have any longevity about it. But I was very conscious at the time about shooting 
on film and on 35 millimeter if I could. And it is possible to shoot very, very low budget films on 35 millimeter. It's not easy. But then if it was, everyone would be doing it, Stephen, wouldn't they? Well, I know everybody would. And I, that's always the one thing you said, it's a low budget and all this other stuff, but there are so many people. It's like, Oh, I wish I could do a film and they never do it. And um, there have been a lot of people like yourself to creatively find ways to fund the project or get things there to, in order to, uh, produce and get that project out and uh, to me that's always even even if it ends up not being something that that's great it's always something that they'll accomplish and to be able to do that you have to appreciate that artists the filmmakers were able to do that and pull it off but from what i saw in the trailer absolutely and it's a stepping stone yes yeah. exactly from what i saw in the trailer you're you're um I mean, I want to get the Monarch on DVD because I'm curious to see the whole thing now because it's just, it's just kind of interesting, a slice of his life on one night and everything being focused on that It's because instead of the whole span of his life where sometimes you lose certain details, it's, it's going to be interesting. I think it would be an interesting movie because it's what, about 90 minutes? Yeah, that's right. And on the DVD, there's a little retrospective. So, so there's some DV camera footage of the making of it. And, uh, and something I'm very interested in is, is film restoration. So even though my film wasn't that old, um, we thought the camera negative had been lost. So it took a little while to track it down. And when we found it, it needed some, some sort of TLC. So there's a restoration feature in there called Restoring a King, where you find out how films are transferred from the, if you want, photochemical world into the digital world and the sort of before and after look. And it's always fascinating to see how much technology enhances old films. So there's a lovely little restoration featurette on there too. So it's good value. Oh, it is. Now, the other one I wanted to bring up <coughs> is Toy Stories. Toy, Toy, Toy Soldiers, I'm sorry. And um, that one I thought was interesting because I was looking at a lot of your different films and I wanted to pick things that were different from each other to show you the diversity of your work a little bit. And in Toy Soldiers, it's um, a, a look at the war, soldiers go in the war from a child's point of view that's staying at home where their parent goes off. And and I thought that was rather interesting. And what led you to go and do that work, that documentary? Well, I think it's probably a common theme in all my work, and it even links to the Lost Movies book, is telling stories that haven't been told before or that have been suppressed or that have been lost. Um, and, and with all of my films, I try and bring something new to say. So people know about war and they know about the children of veterans and so on. Um, there's a kind of a more interesting story how the film was made than was almost more interesting than the film itself. In the UK, if you are a, uh, a widow or a widower and you're receiving a pension from the Ministry of Defence um, because your loved one has passed away, you're not allowed really to talk directly to the media about it. And that's more or less been an embargo that's been in place since the end of the Second World War. And we had that overturned um, with, with the consent of the Ministry of Defence for our films so that the children of service personnel, because it was mainly them who couldn't talk to the media, um, that they could, that they could talk to us. Now, there was very good reasons for that in the past, because um, Ministry of Defence felt that it could target children unnecessarily, the children of, of the war dead, effectively. Um, so with some great sensitivity and with great cooperation with the government, we were able to, 
to, to bring those children's stories to the screen pretty much for the first time. And since then, lots of other children have been able to speak about it if they want to. Um, but I'm always very careful when I'm filming with any child that uh, even if they don't have an outward vulnerable aspect about themselves, that they're homeless or have a mobility issue, I think as adults, we, we take a collective responsibility to assume that children are vulnerable because they're a child and make sure we create a safe environment if they're telling us a story. And in the case of Toy Soldiers, which you can see on my website, the little boy talks about the day he found out that his father had died. And uh, it's, um, it's tough. It's tough to listen to. And for all of us who've been through um, situations when we've lost a parent, to lose a parent when you're an adult, you know, is tough. But to lose a parent when you're a child, it's heartbreaking to hear those stories. Yeah, and that's, and that's one of the things that I wanted to bring it up is just because you're not just pigeonholed into one topic or one genre, and it shows. I mean, you've done a lot of different things, and a lot of you've won a lot of awards over the years. So, I mean, you you've, you obviously have um, a very good eye and and um, writing and directing skills, showing that it's been and it's being appreciated. I mean, a lot of them, I think you've won here in Britain, but it'd be, you know, it'd be interesting to see if it got over here a little more. I'm not sure how much these things are getting shown over in the United States. Now. Yeah, I think if there's, if there's something new to say, it's, it's trying to find something new in the familiar. So if it's about homelessness and your program is playing in prime time, it's got to really punch through. You know, people know the homeless situation they know sometimes why people are homeless, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't make great TV. So for my shows to win audiences and awards, it has to be good television first. So when I followed homeless people in my series Headhunting the Homeless in 2003, it was playing opposite Wife Swap, which was in its second season on the, on the, on the opposing channel. And that was a really popular series. And we beat it each week we were on. And everyone was really surprised because here's a subject about quite potentially a dry issue about homelessness. And yet I took the approach, um, which was the approach that would, would reflect more our own lives. These homeless people were being put back to work through a scheme run by a charity. Now, you don't have to be homeless to know what it's like to start a first day at a new job. What do you wear? Where do you go? Where do I put my coats? Will I get on with the people? Where are the toilets? Where do I eat? You know, there's a whole there's a whole series of things that go through your head when it's any new place. So I tapped into that, and that was the the, the point at which I reflected the audience. So the audience felt, ah, this I'm not homeless and I never have been, but this reflects my life because I recognise what it's like to start a new job, a new school, a new town, a new place. So we would be with people from the moment they got up and they went through all those rituals of what to wear, how many times to wash, because if people think you're homeless, they'll think you're dirty and so on and so on. So it really tapped into that the commonality and those anxieties that we all have. And leap, I have one, which is about, I, I can speak in front of big crowds of people. That's fine. You know, I get a bit nervous. But I get more nervous about being late. I don't want to be late to somewhere. I, I don't mind being super early. I, I, I don't want to be late. So I'm always checking the trains. If I'm relying on third parties, checking that they check because being late is, is, um, you know, is something that gives me some anxiety. 
you know, I mean, we all have some anxiety in life over different issues. For me, lateness through transport is uh, is it. Actually, I, I, I also hate being late. And I'll show up at places and it's like, why, why, why are you here 15, 20 minutes early or whatever? And I'm just like, well, you know, I had to build in that time just in case there's something backed up or whatever. And uh, which also in the inverse, when, when somebody else is, is late getting to um, a, a job site where I'm at or whatever, I have less sympathy for them because it's like, oh, well, it was, it was raining out. It's like, well, yeah, they called for rain last night. You you, you know, it, the traffic's always slow in, in the rain. It, so it kind of actually works um, where sometimes I get annoyed when somebody uses the obvious excuse, like, oh, I was late because of the weather, and I'm thinking, eh, the rest of us were here on time. And <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's finding those common elements. So even though when people look at my work, they might think, well, you know, how does this relate to me? Uh, children learning martial arts, disabled children learning martial arts, that sounds a bit weird and exploitative. How does that relate to me? I'm not interested in martial arts. I'm no longer a child and I'm not disabled. Um, and yet it's one of my most repeated films. Um, 14 times on the BBC, My Life Karate Kids, because it's actually about disability hate crimes amongst children and the terrible things that children do and say to each other um, when they recognize someone is different. So, um, you know, there are, there are all sorts of ways to, to tap in. I think it's, you know, Hollywood used to do it with um, preview screenings and with comment cards. And, and sometimes the comment cards would, would reveal sides of an audience that uh, today you'd use sort of um, an, analytics, wouldn't you, from, from websites. And people are always shocked that uh, well-known websites harvest your data and, and can tell you what's your favorite soup. Um, and what chocolate bars you like. This has been going on forever. You know, ever since people filled in a, a form to say what their favorite films are and what they do and don't like, they like happy endings and so on, that form of customer data or analytics has always been used to help refine the, the experience, whether it's a shopping experience or film or TV experience. So I found over the years that trying to refine what I do so that it reflects our lives and if it doesn't reflect the way we have our life, it maybe reflects an anxiety that we have about life or what could happen. So I think being successful for me and with the sort of multiple awards, it has been looking at familiar subjects in maybe an unfamiliar way. Um, I did a very controversial film about politics in 2010 and uh, that, um, that really was unconventional. So, you know, there are different ways to skin that cat and I, I give talks to film students about how to be successful. And by successful, I mean make money from filmmaking so that you don't have to do anything else. You know, how can I be financially independent as a filmmaker? I'm not talking millions and millions of dollars, but we're talking enough money so you don't have to supplement by working at a bookstore or somewhere else. Um, because it's great if you can find enough work as just a filmmaker. And it's, it's a goal for most filmmakers. They don't want riches. They just want to not have to work somewhere else. So. Exactly. And, and obviously you've, you've been able to do that very successfully and um, for a long period of time and obviously a long period farther to go, you know, cause I, I'm assuming you're not planning on hanging up the reins anytime soon. 
No, no. I mean, I've been doing it now for, um, gosh, I'll reveal my age. I don't even think it says on Wikipedia how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should reveal, but um, I've been working in film and TV now for, for um, 30 years. And uh, so uh, because I don't quite look at my age when people see me up close, they think, oh, hang on, how can you have been in TV for 30 years? And I'm like, don't do the maths. You don't need to know how old I am. Television is the worst for thinking if you look old, you're less relevant. Um, and that's the same for people behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. But um, if, if people want to look at my website, it's johnwalshfilmmaker.com. And you can, or if you just Google John Walsh Filmmaker, you'll find it all there on, on the Wikipedia page. And, and most of my films, my television films, are on there in, in full HD. You can stream them in HD because they are um, they're learning aids for filmmakers, but they're also useful social documents for people who have issues around uh, vulnerable children and adults with uh, issues around uh, vulnerability and anxiety and so on. So we, I had so many requests from people. Can you send me a, a VHS as it used to be? Can you send me a, a DVD of your film? I, I agreed with my rights holders, broadcasters, that they would allow me to stream them from my website um, for, for the public because it is a public service. You know, the films I make, I see as beneficial. Even if people don't agree with my films, they can see them and, and they can argue oh, about them. Um, but they, it is a beneficial forum, I think, to have your film seen by as wide an audience as possible. And I think sometimes if you have people that disagree with a certain film, if they do it the proper way and, and, and think about it and come up with a constructive criticism or constructive feedback or a constructive argument, and then you can and people can talk about the, the different points of view and people can come to a conclusion as a collective. Nowadays, so many people are so quick to just say, oh, that's terrible, and that's it. And, it, and you have nothing, or that's great. And I think either one of those are, are statements that they could be, obviously, they, they agree with, but it does nothing for you, the filmmaker, or you, the creative, to, to go forward. Like, okay, that's great. Well, what was great about? What drew you in? What made you think it was great? Or that was terrible. What was so terrible about, you know, and then you can get an idea where they're coming from. Doesn't mean you'll change your next film to fit that narrative that they want because you have to do what's true to you, but at least you'll understand where they're coming from. That's right. You know, and um, I think, you know, the internet has been great in that everyone suddenly can have a view. Um, but also it's, it's had the negative effect that people think if you, maybe shout the loudest or say the most offensive thing, then that, that will, that will punch through. And, and, you know, that happens mostly in politics, but, you know, for people who are very passionate about the next James Bond, I just seen the trailer for the new Bond film. Um, you know, and I'm a fan of Bond, um, but I have a favorite era of Bond and it's, you know, it's not always everyone else's favorite. Um, and the new star Wars, people will be very passionate about what's happening and what's not happening. Who's coming back, who isn't, so it, it is interesting, the, the internet's given people a free reign. I think in years to come, we'll look back at, the, at, at this period that we're living in now as the wild west of the internet when it was totally unregulated and you could Google pretty much anything and see it. And I think in, in 10, 20 years' time, we'll look back at that and think, wow, really? That's always the way it is. And um, who is your favorite Bond? It's, 
<laughs> this is kind of controversial. Well, it's not controversial, but I have um, I have more favourite films than favourite Bonds, and it happens to be Roger Moore was in my two favourite Bond films, which was <laughs> um, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And uh, people were always kind of, boo, Moonraker. It's, I'm a big fan of Derek Meddings, who did the special effects on Moonraker. And if people really stopped and understood how those effects were done, they would realize he should have been given two Oscars for the work he did on Moonraker. It was absolutely superb. Uh, and my other favorite Bond film is a, is a Sean Connery one. It's um, You Only Live Twice with Donald Pleasance's Blofeld and the, the finales in that wonderful um a volcano set. So I'm, I'm interestingly, all three of those bonds were directed by Lewis Gilbert. So um, it's, it's a strange combination of, I, I suppose my favorite bond is Lewis Gilbert who created those three films with those two actors. Um, but uh, yes, it's, it's the more science fictiony and fantastic a bond can be. If Barbara Broccoli asked me to do a bond, I would set it in the early seventies. Um, and it wouldn't be anything like the new Bond films, which are all wonderful, of course, and they have big fans. But I would want to make it as much like Moonraker and The Spy Who Loved Me as was humanly possible. I'm a big Bond fan also, and I think it's like Doctor Who. Your first Bond, your first Doctor, usually is the one you tend to gravitate towards, and mine is also Roger Moore. And uh, my favorite film of his is um, Live or Let Die. Just, I just always enjoy Okay, it. yeah, that's good. And then, but I know some people are like, oh, it's got to be Sean Connery and this and that. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy all of them. And they all bring, it's just like with the doctors, every one of them brings something different. And I don't usually blame the actor if I don't think the material was good enough, you know, and, and or, 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 or directed well enough. Sometimes it is the actor, but I mean, in usually cases with the Bonds and the Doctor Who's, I don't think it's it usually is, is the actor's mm. fault through the material. That's right, yeah. Now, just before we move into the book, one other thing you've been doing for the last few years is the Ray Harryhausen podcast, which is how I got to know who you were, because I'm a Harryhausen fan. I saw the Ray Harryhausen podcast. I've been following it. Pretty much shortly after you started putting it out, it came up and I saw, oh, Ray Harryhausen podcast. I was like, ooh. And you guys cover a wide range of Harryhausen topics. Um, you have interviews with different actors um, that have been in it. You um, talk about the film scores, the films, and also a lot of different projects that are coming out. And it, it's a very wonderful podcast. If people aren't listening to it, they should listen to the Ray Harryhausen podcast. Do you have anything coming out um, um, in the in the future that you want to talk about, or any future recent episodes you want to mention? Oh yes, absolutely. So I mean, if if we think of the wonderful world of Disney, I mean, you could do a podcast about that for a hundred years and have wonderful material each episode. Well, the Ray Harryhausen Foundation has over fifty thousand items in it, and it's the largest collection of its kind outside of the Walt Disney Company. So. As you, as you say, Stephen, we talk about the films when they have an anniversary or if they have a special re-release. We speak to people involved in the films. But the commentaries I recorded with Ray, 25 hours worth of high-quality audio, which we also filmed, um, we release clips of that in relevant podcasts so that people can get to hear from Ray Harryhausen himself from an exclusive audio clip that hasn't been heard before. And right now we're preparing 
um, with Connor Heaney, who's our collections manager, and he's the whiz who puts together the podcast and does all the editing, cuts out all the bad bits, and makes the sound all kind of uh, professional and radio-like. He um, is putting together a really exciting podcast and one that I've been looking forward to really since we started the music specials. And we've done the music specials in chronological order. We're finishing off with Clash of the Titans. And we have got the like the, the, the world exclusive of world exclusive, which is this. Lawrence Rosenthal did the wonderful, beautiful, layered score for Clash of the Titans. Um, what people may not know, but if they have the Lost Movies book, they, they should know if they've got that far, is that composer John Barry um, did a demo tape of about 15 minutes of music for various themes within the film that, um, that was never used, of course, because they decided to go with another composer. There's only one copy of that cassette. We have it at the foundation. We're going to play extracts in the next episode of the Harryhausen podcast. Oh, that I'm looking forward to because I always love I love a lot of different film scores and there's a lot of film scores that are in Harryhausen films that are just put a smile on your face or, or it's just 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 hearing them you know the Seven Voyages Sinbad and and so on it's it's Jason and the Argonauts there's certain things you can hear and already you just know you're in for a fun time and or it brings back those good memories of the film. I can I can only imagine um, hearing something that was never used. I'd be curious to see what that person's take was going to be. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, John Barry, famous for his scores for James Bond films, for Dances with Wolves, um, you know, Midnight Cowboy. He won several Oscars for his work. So the idea that he's, his score was was rejected or thrown out, as it's called, is, uh, is surprising. And, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about what John Barry was doing at the time he was working on different projects like King Kong and The Black Hole, two favorites of mine as well. I'm a big John Barry fan. I have almost everything he's done on CD. And so it's exciting, you know, for people who, who, who like film and the detail of filmmaking to that level, then it is exciting. You know, if, um, if, if, if I was told there's, there's some more deleted scenes from Empire Strikes Back that haven't been seen and are going to be released, I would rebuy that again. I'd want to see those those, those very slight shavings of, of seconds or minutes, whatever they might be, for favourite films which have deleted scenes. Um, I, I re-bought the Blu-ray of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan just to see a few extra pieces, and, and it was well worth it. So um, I was rather hoping there'd be a 4K release of Star Trek The Motion Picture because the 40th anniversary is, is this Saturday, I think. But no word from Paramount Pictures on a 4K UHD. I mean, that is... I mean, to me, it's just... It's, it's a no-brainer that they wouldn't bring out a film like that in 4K because it was such a beautifully layered film in the first place. But um, we're lucky with Ray Harryhausen's films. Everything's been scanned in HD. Uh, four of Ray's films are now in 4K. And although they haven't been released on UHD format yet, some of them have had cinema releases um, or cinema screenings. So I had a cinema screening of the 4K premiere DCP, digital cinema print, of the Seven Voyages Sinbad um, a couple of months ago when my book launched. So that was great. You know, they, the films look better than they've ever looked. And they do look better than when they were first released. And there's a technical reason for that, I'll explain. And also they have stereo sound for the first time. So most of Ray's films would not have been heard theatrically with stereo sound. Only Clash of the Titans had a stereo optical sound when it was played in theatres. So to hear Ray's films in stereo is wonderful. 
And the reason they look better than they could have ever looked when they were released is for people who know how films are made, you shoot on negative film, a bit like when you take a photograph on negative, it's that kind of brown plastic celluloid that comes back. So traditionally you'd shoot on, on negative, a print would be made from that negative and you do the edit from that. Then the negative would be cut and then the uh, from that cut negative, an interpositive is made, so you go down a generation. From that interpositive, a print for the cinema is made, so you've gone down another generation, and that's what's shown in theatres. The DCPs are often scanned, we're told, from the original camera negative. So it is as if you're viewing the camera negative when you see a 4K DCP of a film using original film elements. So it could never look like that in 1957, on a cinema screen so it is better and and often people say oh i prefer to see it on film which is a real experience okay well maybe these are the same people who'd like to listen to their favorite music on a vinyl record that's got scratches which is fine that's fine you know no disrespect to those people but that is not how it would have been recorded with, with it whether it was the beatles or whoever you know that's not how they recorded they didn't record on vinyl they recorded on a very wide width magnetic tape to reduce hiss where possible and to give the clearest fidelity. And, you know, Ray would approve of films using the latest technology to make his work look and sound as good as it possibly could. Because people say, wouldn't Ray have preferred a film print? No, he wouldn't. I used to have this conversation with him a lot. And he was very excited about modern technology, basically giving his films a bit of spit and polish. And, and one of the things I want to bring up that's, I think, a misconception is that Ray did not like CGI. But from what you said, I gather, he was always, even when he was built doing filmmaking, he was always looking at things that were innovative and was always, um, for a lot of times, ahead of the game. And, and filmmaking had to catch up to him. So what was his opinion? Yes, I mean, Ray was, yeah, so Ray was a technical innovator, Stephen. You're right. So he even supervised the colorization of three of his black and white films. And people say to us, no, why, why have you done this? It's like, these weren't black and white for an aesthetic choice. Um, Earth versus the flying saucers, 20 million miles to Earth, and it came from beneath the sea, would have been shot in color if there had been fast enough film stocks. That means uh, color speed fast enough. And if um, they could have been shot on color, because color was quite a bit more expensive in the 50s. And, and it was easier to hide some of the uh, trick photography using black and white. So when the opportunity came to colorize them using effectively computers, Ray was happy to do it. So he never worked with computers, but had he continued through the 80s as he wanted to with filmmaking, he would have to have embraced that. He did enjoy watching films that had computer graphics. He, he particularly liked the first Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe film of the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series. And he was very taken by the... Um, by the centaurs in that and then the sort of the minotaur kind of characters, minotaurs, yeah. Um, so he, he did enjoy it and he saw it for what it was, which was just another tool in your arsenal. So whether the pencil is real or digital, you still need the idea behind that pencil. And I think a lot of people look at Ray's work and say, that's how to do it, the old fashioned way. And CGI is bad. Just look at Harryhausen stuff. It's, it's lasted out early CGI films. Yes, it has, but Ray was always enthusiastic about changes and developments and other filmmakers' work. You know, he wasn't one of those filmmakers that saw something better and went, mm, 
can't believe they've done it better than me. Um, he'd look at something and say, this is marvellous. How do you do that? He was great friends with Phil Tippett and Dennis Muren down at Industrial Lights and Magic. Both of them have contributed to my new book. Um, you know, they wouldn't have done what they did without Ray's influence and Ray's films. But yet Ray enjoyed the work that sprung from their innovations. So I think it's, it's sometimes it feels unfair that Manny's computer graphics people got into it maybe from watching Ray's films and now they've been kind of kicked around by people who think that if it's new, it must be bad. You know, there's lots of successful films that have computer graphics in them. There's lots of unsuccessful films that also use computer graphics. But if you use it correctly, then it's going to enhance enhance the filmmaking experience. And without computer technology, we would not be able to create 4K scans of great classic films. So I think it's that whole sort of symbiosis thing. Everything can exist together in harmony if we just allow it to. And that's just one of the myths I wanted to get across to people because everybody, sometimes I'll talk to somebody it's like, oh, Ray would never want to do this and that. And knowing you've, you brought, you brought this up in your podcast once or twice. And I knew the answer was like, no, he, he really would have embraced the new technology and went into it. One of our listeners did have a question about one of his films was not colorized. And if it was the beast, from 20,000 Phantoms, if I'm correct. And he wanted to know yes, why. Yes, that's right. He wanted to know, like, why was that one not colorized at all? Since you brought up the, the most, the, like, most of them were colorized. Yep, I know the answer to that. And I can tell you, it's simply the case that the good folks down at Sony Pictures, who look after the Columbia Pictures Library, where Ray did most of his films, um, Ray did the ones I talked about there, the colorized ones, because of a, an ongoing uh, restoration project with Sony. Uh, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, along with Mighty Joe Young, Clash of the Titans, and One Million Years BC, all lie within the Warner Brothers, or sometimes 20th Century Fox for One Million Years BC, depending on who's releasing it. But they're all looked after by Warner Brothers. And uh, they've done beautiful black and white restorations of all of those, um, those two black and white films. They haven't done such a great job on Clash of the Titans, you know, um, it doesn't even have 5.1 stereo sound. It needs a full remaster for the 40th anniversary next year, uh, two years' time. Um, but no, it's simply a case of Warners were not looking to colorize any of their films. And I'm, I'm sure they would have offered that to Ray had they thought there was a market for it. Um, we recorded the commentaries for Ray's films. We'd done it in reverse order. We started on Clash of the Titans and worked our way backwards as we got to Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, Ray fell ill and he died. So it was the only film that we weren't able to capture a unique audio commentary for. Um, and it would have been wonderful. It would have been wonderful to have colorized that film. And I'm hoping that maybe one day we can speak to uh, Warner Brothers, who we have a really good relationship with, um, about possibly doing that. But they've done a great job on, on Ray's catalog so far, um, with, with a little side note that Clash of the Titans needs, needs a little bit more. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that in two years' time they come out with something that's really going to blow our socks off. I hope so, because Clash of the Titans doesn't look great, and it's not to do with Warner Brothers. It's It was to do with some um, uh, sort of printing and laboratory choices at the time, and uh, it, but it, it needs a lot of help to look better than it, than it currently does. And I think Warners are doing some splendid 
um, library releases of their films. If you think of the Tim Burton Batman films, the two of those look absolutely gorgeous as 4K UHDs. Gremlins is out as a 4K. So I'm hoping that, um, although it's part of the MGM library, Warner's own Clash of the Titans now, I'm hoping that they can do a 4K UHD for uh, 2021. And we have amazing test footage that's never been seen before. There's a clip of Pegasus test footage that's in the trailer for my book. And uh, that was some of the unseen stop motion sequences that we're unearthing all the time at the foundation. So I'd like that on a, on a Clash of Titans uh, 4K release, along with my short film, which includes creatures from the Clash of Titans film, like the Kraken, Calabos, and so on. So it would, it would make sense for them to uh, put my little student short on there as well. I'm hoping they do. And um, now moving into the book, the law, Harry, Harry Howes and the Lost Movies. Um, for those that haven't seen the book yet, it's very well laid out. I own a copy of it, and it, there's pictures, there's sketches, there's things that anybody that's a Harry Housen fan is just going to enjoy. And it's set up in a, I'd say like a coffee table type format where you can just pick it up, read for a few minutes. Um, you could put it back down, read for a few minutes more. And it, it, it's very enjoyable, and it covers, as you have said, about around 80 different films or ideas for films or, or things that were left out. Um, how did you format it, you know, the book, to, to give people an idea, like how you set it up? Well, yeah, well, because there was this kind of three distinct areas that, that cover lost movies, so none of these films were kind of lost or left at a bus station or lost and left in the middle of the forest. It was nothing like that. But um, they were the first category of the films Ray tried to make but but didn't find the finance for or couldn't option the books for if it was a H.G. Wells uh, project perhaps. Um, there were the films he was offered, and that is really fascinating because it, it gives you an idea of what the outside world thought of Ray Harryhausen, the offers he was getting. And then the third category are scenes that were cut from his films for various reasons, whether it was financial, whether it was because the censors felt that it was too maybe violent for a family audience certification. So I decided the best way to do this was to put them chronologically because it, you want to see the films that Ray was making at the time with the films he wasn't. So it gives you a sense of what he was interested in and, and what was, the, if you like, the wheelhouse of his decision-making. And uh, some people have referred to it as it's like 80 short stories because they're kind of interconnected in that they're Ray Harryhausen films and some reference other films. But as you say, Stephen, you can literally pick it up, flick to a decade and just read one of these, if we want to call them short stories. And some are very short, just a paragraph or so because we have no other information. Others go on for several pages because I've got in touch with people who were involved with those projects or provided artwork. Um, so it was fascinating to do it chronologically and, and the layout is beautiful. Tyson books. I work with uh, Natasha and, and Susie Ray, my editor there, um, extensively so that we gave it a real sort of art book feel. So it gave the, the images had to have priority. And this is where I was really concerned in the past. Some of Ray's books had, because he'd had help from third parties, there was too much, there was too much text. There was too much text and you get like a little thumbnail image and you're like, oh, oh, that should have been on a page on its own. Oh, okay. Um, 
as it is with the Lost Movies book, I would have liked to have had twice the size of pages, twice the amount of pages. But we really give the images priority. And I was cutting back, cutting back, cutting back on all of the text, what I was saying, trying to say in as lean and as clean a way as possible, because I'm not interested in hearing from me. If we're hearing from third parties and we have some amazing third, look, no one wants to hear from me when you can hear from Dennis Neuron. You're not going to want to hear from me when you can hear from Phil Tippett, John Landis, Guillermo del Toro, John Borman, Mike Hodges, Nicholas Meyer, um, Terry Gilliam. So these are the people I want to hear from. So I interviewed all of those people for the book and they told me about their own lost films and their own experiences with Ray Harryhausen and his films. And that was what really brought it alive. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a proper record really. It's like a little encyclopedia of Ray's unmade films. And I was really worried that we'd get to the end and suddenly we'd find a few more. I'd be like, Oh no, Oh no, we found four or five more. The very last film I found was the one that was was the kind of, I suppose, the most disparate in terms of elements because I had a scrap of paper on, on a legal pad. So it was a, a yellow-colored legal lines pad, A4 pad. And it was um, sailors in a boat and they were being attacked by a large sea creature. Anyway, it turns out when we did a bit of digging and investigating it was the storyboards for the unshot special effects for John Huston's Moby Dick. And uh, Ray Harryhausen's very good friend, Ray Bradbury, who'd uh, been the inspiration for The Beast and 20,000 Fathoms from a short story he'd written, um, was writing the screenplay for uh, John Huston's Moby Dick. And they were having a lot of trouble doing a convincing special effect for the great white whale. And they'd spent um, more than half the film's budget on trying to create something that was realistic. And at one stage, Ray Bradbury thought that Ray Harryhausen would be the person to um, to fix that problem. And yes, he would have been. He absolutely would have been. Because Ray can do all that front projection with full-scale water. He, he'd done it. He did it with Beast. He did it with It Came From Beneath the Sea. And yes, he would have been the right person. But Ray Bradbury decided that it wouldn't be a good idea because Bradbury and John Houston fought like cat and dog on that film. And there's no disrespect to either men. They are both great men. It was because they had very similar personalities. They were very strong personalities and they were, um, what's the polite way of putting this? <laughs> they were very, um, the impolite way would be to say pig headed. So um, they were people with strong conviction who had been proved right in their fields a great filmmaker, John Huston, one of the great, uh, possibly one of the greatest writers of all time, Ray Bradbury. How do you, how do you resolve that? If you think you've written the right thing and you're giving it to the filmmaker who thinks, no, you haven't, I'm going to film the right thing. And John Huston and his experience with Bradbury was, was documented in the book that Bradbury brought out in the 1990s. And so Ray Bradbury was keen not to smash his relationship with Ray Harryhausen on the rocks of John Huston's ego as he saw it. So that was the last entry into my book. So it was quite a, a shocker because it wasn't a, a typical monster movie. It didn't have Sinbad or anything like that in it. And it was a really interesting diversion from what people might have expected because I think when people think it's a lost Harryhausen book, there's going to be 20 Sinbads, there's going to be a whole bunch of Greek myths films in there 
and there's going to be like some Godzilla type stuff. No, there are some real surprises. So it's um, it's great that people who knew Ray and worked with him and people like Phil Tippett, who were big fans, when Phil got the book, he emailed me to say, this is great. He said, there was, these are the answers I've been waiting for. And I didn't know he worked on this. And I can't believe he turned that down. And, and the same from, from other filmmakers. So it's gratifying that people who have a real detailed, intimate knowledge of stop motion, like Phil Tippett, who's a multi-academy award winner, could say there was lots in here he didn't know. So that's, that's, that's a great endorsement. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one of the things I wanted to say, what, tag on with you were saying, when I read through the book, I was like, he, he wanted to do Baron um, Munchausen, I'm trying to I'm trying to start saying it right, but there was like things like that that he wanted to do stories in, and I was just like, oh, that's interesting. He wanted to go that path, but the one that really intrigued me that I would never think of Ray Harryhausen it was he was interested in the House of Usher. Yes, so he was fascinated by Edgar Allan Poe, and he was fascinated by sort of gothic um, stories, and he was interested in horror films. Um, he was interested in, in, in the areas of like Conan the Barbarian, which is ultra violence as well. So we think of Ray Harryhausen's films as being family fair. They are, they are family certificates, but it was because the studios would say, we want more of the same from you, which would be, you know, a, a, the equivalent of a PG certificate at most that most of the family could go to see. So, the films that Ray wanted to do that had larger um, or potentially smaller audiences that were more violent, the studio was like, mm, no, why would we want that from you? And and Ray's partner, Charles Schneer, his producing partner, realized that had they had a film that was a big financial failure, then that could threaten their existence as filmmakers. So, I mean, I get this with TV as well. You know, if you've done something successful on something, they'll come back and say, do you want to do another series? And I always say yes, because, you know, <laughs> you never say no when someone offers you another series, but they never couch it in the terms you expect. Because I always had this fantasy of when I'm offered a second series, someone would come running towards me with a big pot of gold and say, this is brilliant, have a second series, we love you. No, it's normally couched. And maybe this is just me, but if other filmmakers want to confirm this, the, the, the network will come to you and say, okay, series one was good, but uh, if you went for a second series, maybe you could get it right this time. I'm like, oh, thanks. I think, <laughs> thank you. They're like, you're welcome. I'm like, oh, thank you very much. So rather than coming out covered in, in compliments and showered with rose petals, you come out feeling a bit deflated that, oh, right, I've got, we were vast denominated for that one. They want us to go again and get it right this time. Oh, okay. So it's 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 not how people imagine when you're asked in to do some more. Um, so yes, I mean it's it's always surprising that Ray was interested in other areas that were so different to the films he made. But if he did go and do Baron Munchausen or the Edgar Allan Poe stuff, The Fall of the House of Usher, maybe it would have meant no Jason the Argonauts or no First Men in the Moon. So I think these aren't films he could have made as well as these are films he could have made instead of. So which of Ray's films would you swap that he did make for ones he didn't? And that's kind of hard. You know, um, it's a tough choice. 
and it is tough. And obviously, he had to make those choices, which is why a lot of these um, were un or lost movies because he was busy working on other projects or or um, from what I read, like they offered him King Kong in uh, the seventies, but the the time frame was too small <laughs> for him to actually pull it That's off. That's right. Yeah, so he was contacted by Dino De Laurentiis at Christmas 1975. Dino rang him in his house. So you can't imagine that today. You know, you'd have to go through layers of entourage to get to anyone anywhere now. And uh, yes, he said, is this Ray Harryhausen? And Ray said, yes, this is Ray Harryhausen. Um, he said, I'm going to remake the biggest monster film in cinema history. I'm remaking King Kong. And Dino had a wonderful budget. He had an enormous budget. He had a brilliant cast assembled. He was putting together a terrific crew. Of course, John Barry ended up doing the music. I'm a big fan of Kong 76. I know a lot of people don't like it, but it was the third most successful film of the year. It was a major production. The special effects in it were um, were quite controversial, but he asked Ray, would he come on board and, and basically create stop-motion work for the film? And Ray said, this is marvellous. When are you thinking of, of, of starting and so on? He said, we need to be in theatres in 12 months. And it's like, okay, well, it would take 12 months to do the preparation work, the development work. And I mean, you're talking with the amount of minutes on screen that Kong um, occupies, you're talking probably three years of stop motion animation, even with help from the third parties. So that 1976 Kong might have come out in 1980. I mean, Dino was the kind of filmmaker who was very sort of instinctive and, and would make decisions and often very good ones. And he'd just go, no, 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 let's go, let's go, let's do this, let's do this. And uh, I'm a big fan of Dino De Laurentiis. And I've been looking recently quite closely at his life for another project. And he really is an amazing man. And we wouldn't have so many of the great films we have today without him. You know, Conan the Barbarian was eventually made. It was Dino and only Dino that made that happen up until then. And Ray wanted to do it in the 60s. Studio said, no, you can't put sword and sandal, which is a kind of a, a light sort of a lightly violent genre with ultra violence. It just there won't be an audience for that because they felt sword and sandal and those films of Hercules and that sort of thing. And even the, the, the earlier sort of films with, um, Charlton Heston and Moses and the Bible stuff and so on. You, you can't put ultraviolence with that because it's mostly a juvenile male audience. So if you're, if you're talking like a 17 or 18 year old audience, it's not going to work. So says the studio hierarchy. And that's why Ray in the end didn't option the Conan books because why pay all that money only to throw out the baby and the bathwater because you can't have the, the ultraviolence. But Dino proved not only you can do it and that you get big box office returns, but he created a genre in himself by doing that in cinema. One that um, echoes today with projects like Game of Thrones. So Game of Thrones owes a lot to Dina De Laurentiis and John Milius for their portrayal of Conan on screen. So it shows it's commercially viable. You will find an audience for it. And Game of Thrones is very adult. You wouldn't call it family entertainment. You couldn't sit and watch that. So I think Ray was was kind of scuppered by the the, um, the 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 social and etiquette morals of the time, and what studios thought would be too big a risk. 
the irony was studios could have afforded to have taken major risks back then because they were in control, really in control. I think if studio heads saw what's happening right now in 2019, they'd either just not believe it or be horrified, horrified that clips of films are shared and given away and on the internet and for free. You know, back in the day, if you wanted a clip from an old Hollywood film in a TV program you were making, the hoops you'd have to jump through and the cost and the expense and so on because it was really regulated. It was like asking somebody, can I come and drink from the fountain of youth? Be like, yes, you can, but we're going to charge you almost your soul and your life for one teaspoon. Um, but it's not that anymore. You know, so studios are paying, taking much bigger risks now and they really can't afford to. And a lot of the streaming services are making major financial risks that they will not survive. They cannot survive because the amount, the size of the audience has never changed really. And the appetite for the audience hasn't really changed. So providing lots of new content for an audience when it's still the same size is, um, is suicidal. It really is. And it's an interesting time for um, filmmaking and um, TV shows and everything that's going on in the last like 10 years. And who knows what the future is going to be like uh, 10 years from now, how we're going to be um, consuming these different products. Uh, and it's, I'm, I'm personally, I always like, to, I, I, I always enjoy streaming, but I like to have the physical media too, because you know, streaming services can come and go, but you always have the physical copy and I think Ray Harryhausen was that way because you're able to do a lot of these things because for all intents and purposes, Ray was almost a hoarder with all of his materials. So Ray Harryhausen had an enormous capacity for keeping things from each of his films. So we have dog licenses going back to the 1930s. So he kept as many things as he could. So he kept more than probably most filmmakers would. So we have most of the creatures from most of the films. And we have so much artwork and uh, sort of related film material and scripts. But the Lost Movies book was an opportunity to put it all together, all the unmade stuff. Because for Jason the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans, we had that in, in various places and boxes marked up, whereas he didn't really mark up Lost Movies. Now, one of the Lost Movies was R.U.R. Rossum's Universal Robots. And I was reading that, out, and the whole premise of it was very intriguing, and it actually seems like something that could play well today. You know, it's like if they were to do it, but it was interesting how Ray would have done all these robots, and um, basically, from I got, they take over the world, and then there's two robots left, and one's Adam and one's Eve. But as you said, in order to get that one, we would have lost that in the fairy tales that he did because I think that's why he chose not to do the RUR. Yes. I mean, it, it was, the, the irony is that um, he kind of thought that uh, it would become cliched. I mean, this is 1945 and Ray had thought that maybe robots had become cliched and that this sort of um, robot film wouldn't have really been accepted. And when you look at it you look at the amazing artwork, I mean, there's an example of that artwork needed a page if I need to chop the legs and hands off of what I've written in this book, the artwork is going to get a page to itself, and it does. Um, it reminds me of like Terminator 2. When you think about you know, these future machines, they're, they're sort of these Adonises that are created, but then turn on man. And I just think it's, 
it was it shows incredible foresight that Ray guessed it right. But it's such a shame he parked it. You know, he parked that idea. And it's such a shame he didn't go further with Conan and found a studio that would say yes to ultraviolence because that would have been marvellous. When Conan was made in the 80s, they didn't get certain things right, like the giant snake. Ray would have got that perfectly right. Um, you know, Ray was not just sometimes getting it right. He seemed to be always getting it right. Um, you know, in the late 1960s, he predicted the revival of the disaster genre that would have would have dominated 70s cinema. You know, he wanted to make um, a remake of The Deluge, which was a film from the 1930s. He wanted to set it in London with sort of London Bridge and Big Ben. And, and there's some great artwork that's in the book. Yeah. And he went to the head of Hammer Films, who was looking for something um, as a follow-up to One Million Years BC, which was had been Hammer Films' financially most successful film. And people think, no, surely it's the Draculas and the Frankensteins. Nope. It's Fur Bikini, Raquel Welsh fighting dinosaurs. That's their most successful film by every measure. So they said to Ray, let's do another one. And he wasn't keen to just do another um, another One Million Years BC. But he said, look, this could be the next thing. I think this this thing about you know natural disasters, this, this, this genre could come back. And uh, Hammer Films, who are not around today, interestingly, said, um, I don't think so. I don't think this is 1969. I don't think the disaster genre is due for a, revi a revival anytime soon. In walks Erwin Allen, the Poseidon Adventure, the Towering Inferno, Earthquake um, from other producers. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's astonishing, really, to think that someone didn't just say to Ray, oh, I know I said no to you 12 months ago, but quickly, let's get the deluge out. I mean, there was all of that time in the 70s they could have done it. Um, of course, Ray would get locked into other films, but he was regularly guessing it right. I mean, if think, think of it this way. In this country, we're as obsessed with the lottery as, as you are in, in, in the US. If I regularly had the right lottery numbers and showed you the night before, oh, look, I think I'm going to guess tomorrow night's lottery. And I did it twice. And I said, oh, I should have ran my numbers because I, I, I won the big one again without running. I'd say to you here, Stephen, do you want to try my numbers? Um, you know, I can't believe people didn't look at what Ray was guessing at and say, you know what, regardless of what we think here at the studio, we're going to go with this because you seem to guess it right every decade. Right. So, you know, it's, um, I mean, I know I've been quite flippant about it because it's a big risk for a studio to, to take on a film. If, if a film goes south, then it's often the studio head who has to resign. But um, it does seem a shame. You know, people have read this book and said, oh, it's really... It's great to see it all here, but wow, how sad that so much creativity has, has gone um, unrewarded. And, and Ray's not here to see the book, which is a real shame. Well, and, then, and some of these things were never done by Ray, but in, an interesting thing, in the fairy tales part, The Night Before Christmas was one of the fairy tales he wanted to do. But in a sense, for him laying some of that groundwork it was, I think, if I remember correctly, done in a, a version of it by Tim Burton, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, for Ray, it would have been the much more traditional um, nursery rhyme fairy tale that we know of. But, yeah, you know, people like Tim Burton were, were hugely um, influenced by Ray. And, and Tim, 
did visit Ray at Ray's house in London with Johnny Depp when they were making Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So um, funny story that goes with that is um, uh, Ray said to Vanessa, his daughter afterwards, oh, I had um, Tim Burton here and a young man with him. I think it was his assistant. He sat on the floor just listening to us talking. And uh, uh, somebody said to Vanessa, oh, yeah, that was Johnny Depp. And uh, she's like, oh, Daddy, why didn't you tell me? I would have come. I would have loved to have been there. I'd love to have seen Johnny Depp. So Ray was aware who Tim Burton was, but wasn't aware that that was Johnny Depp at the time. So it's quite sweet. But um, Johnny apparently sat there and listened to Tim and, and Ray chatting about films and was fascinated. But, um, you know, it's, it's marvellous that filmmakers like Tim Burton and John Landis would always take the time to visit with Ray at his house anytime they came to London. And, that, and that's the great thing is about certain filmmakers appreciating the people that have done the stuff in the past and, and going there and, and picking their brain, talking to them about different ideas, like why did you think about doing it this way and so on, and uh, it yeah. explains why they're both successful filmmakers themselves. Yeah, and, you know, and they share the same stories. You know, We have five filmmakers who contribute to the forward of this book, and they all talk about, yep, we all know the pain of unmade films and you know, John Landis reveals exclusively for the book the films he was trying to make with Universal in the 80s that didn't happen. Um, so it's it's not a pleasant experience to have unmade films, but it's one that most creative people share. You know, lots of creatives share that process of unrealized um, projects. It's just, in Ray's case, there's, there's a significant amount of artwork and elbow grease that went into it as well. You know, for most filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock, an unmade movies book would be mostly text and, you know, outlines and treatments and so on, and maybe a few photographs here and there. But Ray's unmade film, it's a real visual feast. If you didn't even read any of the text and just flick through looking at the pictures, you'd know you were looking at an enormous talent. And that's why I think, um, I mentioned to you this, I think, before we started recording, where you had been a filmmaker added to that the book because you're not looking at the words you're looking at the full visual appearance that you're going to be seeing and it shows yes it's not moving pictures but you can you have that eye for putting the, the, the making sure what images need that page but that, that uh, you'd want to see a full page of i know i like to see a full page of those sketches are just amazing because so, i think so many people forget how good his artwork was because they're so focused on the, the, the models and these sculptures. But then when they see a book like this and, and, and other books that have had his artwork in it, and then you're just blown away with some of those pictures. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 um, if we think of examples of other films, if you think of the star Wars, the original star Wars films, you have a famous illustrator like Ralph, Ralph McQuarrie, who did amazing iconic production artwork. Um, but Ray was like Ralph McQuarrie and he was doing that and sculpting the creatures and doing the animations and directing the, uh, the live action plates for that and then putting it all together. So it really is astonishing. And he was a sculptor. So it's astonishing to think Ray had all of these skills at his fingertips because it doesn't necessarily follow that if you can draw, then you must be able to sculpt. And if you can draw and sculpt, then you must be able to animate. And if you can draw, sculpt and animate, you must be able to do something else. So, um, I think it's really astonishing and it really reveals that side of Ray that people don't really think about because you think of just the animation and the performance through the fingers 
Um, but here it's an opportunity to kind of pause and think about what could have been. And certainly here in the UK, Ray's films would often be on at Christmas time. So um, Christmas and the sort of national holidays, what are called bank holidays here, um, and New Year's and Easter, Ray's films would be on television. So um, on a recent popular soap opera here in the UK, people were gathered round, they were having an early Christmas because one of the lead characters was dying. It's all very sad. And they, they had this discussion about which film should we watch if we're doing an early Christmas. And uh, they said, oh, should it be a James Bond? Should it be a Harry Potter? And they decided, no, Clash of the Titans, the original one with the, uh, with the golden owl. And we were really taken by that. So we got permission to use that clip on our Facebook page. And for people who know Coronation Street, it's one of the world's longest running soap operas. For one of their principal characters before she dies to decide, I want to watch Clash of the Titans before I die. Um, it was quite, I was really taken aback and surprised. And, and it just shows you the length to which Ray's work has, has I suppose, um, attached itself to people's emotions in a way that other films have kind of come and gone. So if you were to look at the films that came out the same year as Clash or the same year as Jason and the Argonauts, or the films that won Best Picture, you know, that's often an interesting guy. You think, who was that? And what was that film about? Those films haven't often been scanned in 2K, let alone 4K. So it's fascinating that Ray didn't get the recognition he should have when his films were released. They, they weren't called Ray Harryhausen films. It didn't say it's on the poster like it does now on the DVDs, the Ray Harryhausen collection. His name was on the poster, but so was the director of photography and the editor and so on. But he lived long enough to see not only his films recognized for what they were, but for his work to be seen as a genre in itself. So when filmmakers talk about Ray Harryhausen films or it's like a Harryhausen film, you'd be like, oh, oh, I know what you mean by that. If someone said to you, Stephen, there's a new film out, it's like a Ray Harryhausen type film, you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm thinking Skeletons from Jason the Argonauts, Medusa from Clash of the Titans, maybe Bubo the Owl. So you're thinking of your favorite moments and you're thinking, oh, is it going to be like that? Um, but one of the, the major departures we've made at the foundation since Ray's died in 2013 is to start up, um, start up the films again. So rather than being just a museum exhibit of Ray's work, um, I've talked in the section on Force of the Trojans, which was the follow-up film to Clash of the Titans, um, about getting Ray's films made again. And it is possible with the artworks we have and with the notes that let Ray left behind that we could think about bringing some of his films back to the silver screen. You know, there is a market for it amongst people who want to see films from their childhood remade. We think about The Dark Crystal, which wasn't that successful when it first came out theatrically. And now this amazing series for Netflix and so on. There's talk of Labyrinth who's coming next. Um, all of the Disney films that are live action versions, The Lion King, Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast have been very successful. So why not? Why not some of Ray's films? And we've formed a new film company, Ray Harryhausen Films Limited. There's an original name for you. <laughs> and we're in part Morningside Productions, which was the original production company that Ray made the films through with production partner Charles Schneer. Now, both men are no longer with us, but we're in a, we're in a strong position to... Uh, move forward now that we've formed this kind of legal marriage well that is something i know every harryhausen fan will be looking forward to and you brought up about force of the trojans which was the sequel to you know the never done sequel for clash of the titans 
Um, I had a listener had a two questions, a two part question. The listener wants to know why it was never made, and also if there's any sketches or models that exist. Yes, so it wasn't made. It was quite a, it was quite a complex reason. Um, why it wasn't made was because, and this is the strange thing about it. This is the stinger in the tale. Clash of the Titans was Ray's uh, most expensive film, but it was his most successful film by far, by every measure, both financially, both by tickets on uh, bums on seats, by tickets sold, by VHSs sold, DVDs, uh, cinema screenings, performances, television transmissions, the works. And yet he had trouble guessing the next film, although Force of the Trojans isn't a direct sequel, it was the film that was planned next. Um, MGM was going through some financial straits at the time, but fantasy cinema was, was falling out of favor. So Conan the Barbarian had been successful, but Krull over at Columbia Pictures had been unsuccessful. I'm a big fan of Krull, a very big fan. I love that film. Um, it had a Cyclops in it. It had some kind of flying horses. It felt like it could have been a Ray Harryhausen film. Um, I don't think Ray was a big fan of it. Um, but there's a lot of good things in Krull. Anyway, it, it, it tanked. And that kind of put the, the tin cap on films like that being made. And it was much more expensive than Clash of the Titans as well. I think it had near twice the budget. So fantasy and science fiction was moving into the 80s. If we think about what was happening... You were having Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. The Star Trek films were were, were getting out of the gate properly after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Blade Runner kind of stumbled on its first release. Um, there wasn't anything else quite like what Ray would do. And then the superhero films were stumbling around. Superman 3 didn't do too well. Supergirl then failed. So there was some big high-profile FX films that um, weren't doing well. Then when you look at what was doing well, it was comedy with with great people like um, Eddie Murphy coming to the forward trading places, Beverly Hills Cops. If you wanted a Beverly Hills Cop film, you could, you could film it fairly quickly because you're talking about live action people and stunt work and it would be ready in about a year's time. But if that was a, a fantasy extravaganza, then maybe you're talking two years with twice the budget. And since you can't, charge people twice the price in the cinema because it's a fantasy film you've got to charge them whatever it is it costs for a ticket so it became less of a financial proposition that studios wanted to take it was less of a risk they were prepared to take why should you take a risk when fantasy and sci-fi seems to be um failing but it wasn't that it was because there was such a proliferation of those titles it stood to reason that for every uh um you know, for every uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, the following year, June, you know, and June, which I'm also a big fan of, I'm loving everything, aren't I? Um, it, it didn't do as well as expected. It didn't actually lose money, but it very, came very close. Um, so it was hard. It was, it was hard in that environment where people were kind of, studios were anti-sci-fi and anti-fantasy, it seemed. Some people were gold-plated like George Lucas and his films and Steven Spielberg with his projects. But uh, outside of that, it was tough. Um, the Last Starfighter, which is a great film and people remember it as a great success, didn't punch through the way it should have done. Flight of the Navigator, another great film, being reassessed now as a great film, didn't punch through the way it should have done. 
as we mentioned, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and so on. So the, the 80s is kind of littered with sci-fi and fantasy films, which The Thing, people are always amazed. John Carpenter's The Thing was a big flop for Universal Pictures. How could that have happened? That's an absolute, it's like the godfather of science fiction films. Um, that's amazing to say that out loud. And Big Trouble in Little China as well. I mean, it's amazing to say that those films out loud lost money. So it was a tricky environment in the 80s. So for Ray, it was harder and harder to get films made. And the people who were commissioning him at studios were leaving. And the new guys coming in saw Ray and Charles Schneer as, as, as the old guard. And the new guard wasn't wanting much to do with the old guard, as often happens. You know, in the UK, if and when the Queen leaves office, literally the new guard with Prince Charles will come in and take over and he'll have all new staff. So as monarch, as the new King of England, he'll have all new staff. So it literally is that phrase in action. The old guard will not want the new guard. So interesting times. Exactly. Now the other part, do any sketches and models exist that Ray might have done? Yes. Yeah, and they're in the book, so we have some of the best of them in the book. And, uh, yeah, he had models, sketches, and we have sketches by other people as well, controversially, because Charles Schneer decided um, that maybe he could replace Ray Harryhausen. How very dare you, sir? Um, so that was controversial. We talk about that in the, in the Force of the Trojans chapter. Force of the Trojans is a very expanded part of the book because there's so much more to talk about. Um, and it's uh, it was... Despite Clash of the Titans being a successful film, it strained the professional relationship between Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer, um, almost to the point of breaking. So, you know, with great success comes great pressure. And, uh, you know, Charles Schneer used to make other films without Ray Harryhausen up until the sort of the early 1960s. But then he was finding the only films he could get were films with Ray Harryhausen. So he felt kind of um, shackled, I suppose, to Ray. He was lucky to be shackled to him because Ray is brilliant. Um, but that didn't sit nicely with a producer's ego because often he would go off and make another film whilst Ray was doing the animations on whatever was the last film they made. And so he could go and choose a live action thing with Vikings or a sing song with uh, Tommy Steele, who was a, a music and dance man. Um, but that wasn't happening anymore for him as well. So the whole market was changing. If you think about this, it's like going underground. If, 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 if you and I went to a desert island to make a film for three years and had no contact with anyone, then came back, you could find us a new president. We might have a new prime minister in this country. You know, it would be, it would be hard to, to reemerge after three years of being away with your film and expect the market to accept it and for people to welcome you. You know, often if there's been a change of studio head, and you said, hey, I finished the film. Like, what's that? Sinbad. Oh, right. We've got another one of them coming, have we? Yeah, yeah. You commissioned it three years ago. Oh. Oh, okay. Put it on the pile over there. We'll see when we'll release it. You know, so it's, it can be really disheartening. You work on something for that long. There's a change at the studio. And they're not really that bothered about something that the previous studio had commissioned three years ago. Lack of gratitude. I mean, it's. For people who work in film and TV, they know what lack of gratitude feels like. Um, it's still not nice. Exactly. And, um, of course, thankfully, he was able to find out how he was appreciated 
you know, from like I, like you said earlier with the various people visiting him and other people letting him know, you know, how much his work meant to them, meant to him. Um, yeah. Another question that somebody had goes with Jason and the Argonauts. And he was wondering if you know how, if you might be able to know the answer to this, how did Ray get the face registration so perfect in the transformation of the old man in the Hermes? Oh, um, well, normally for something like that, you'd get somebody to, to stand against a kind of a brace on the wall. So it would be a, simply a case of, um, of registration. So the camera wouldn't move. And obviously the actor would have to move while he's having the makeup work redone. But when he'd stand back against the wall, he, they'd prop his head against something um, effectively like a surface gauge. So it, it, within animation itself, when Ray was dealing with inanimate objects, you'd use a surface gauge to make sure things uh, were in the right place. With live actors, it was it was a similar process. You'd need to make sure that you stick them back where you found them. Exactly, and what his his point was, it was just done so perfectly. You know, the, and I think part of that is Ray's eye to detail with the miniatures, moving them so minutely from frame to frame. I think that helped him of making sure the actor was lined up exactly the way he wanted or if he was the one doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Another, the last listener question I have from somebody is what was the relationship like between Ray and George Powell? Well, now that was a really interesting one because um, Ray had worked under George Powell on, on the puppetoon series and was a great admirer of Powell and of Powell's work. However, <laughs> not to be a fly in the ointment, but as you know, in the late 1940s, Ray had done his own test footage for War of the Worlds. And uh, in the book, you'll see um, images of the Martians who were going to bestride the landscape in sort of uh, tripoded legs, as they should have been, as it was in H.G. Wells' book. And Ray had done some lovely test footage of one of the Martians unscrewing itself from uh, one of the spaceships. Now, Ray had been everywhere with this and he couldn't get much interest in it. He was confident he could get the rights to War of the Worlds. And, of course, it all came it all came to nothing. And eventually, George Powell himself made a very successful version in the 1950s of War of the Worlds, a colour version, except it was very different. His Martians were in saucers and they were, they were flown effectively on strings. It was very successful, but it wasn't very faithful to the original material. Um, but rather frustratingly, there were four instances when Ray tried to do something with H.G. Wells. That was the first War of the Worlds. Um, the next would have been the uh, time machine. Ray was interested in doing that, and there was some development work you'll see in the book. And uh, George Powell beat him to that as well. Um, uh, or actually, rather, George Powell developed it after Ray had tried to develop it. So sort of George Powell managed to get two H.G. Wells projects made. Um, Ray did manage to get First Men in the Moon onto screen, and that's a H.G. Wells classic. Um, but the, the fourth H.G. Wells, which is probably one of the less uh, known ones, was um, Food of the Gods. And that was something that uh, Ray created lovely artwork for, and that's in the, that's in the book in, in the early 1960s. And it's fascinating because in some ways, that's the most fantastical story, but it's the one that's most relevant to today. And it was about how scientists had come up with a way of solving the world's food crisis 
by growing enormous farm animals. And when I say enormous, I mean chickens that were the size of Godzilla. You kind of think, hang on, in, in some way that's kind of a good idea. Better to have one massive chicken than a whole load of, you know. And anyway, as, as these things often do, the scientists aren't in control of their experiments. And so Food of the Gods was never really made by anyone. There were versions that kind of popped up in the 70s, but nothing to the scale of, of what Wells intended. So there's a book there potentially to be made. So if, um, if Netflix or Walt Disney would like to do that, they can come and speak to us. Our book is like a pitch document of unmade films. But people say, you know, Hollywood is, 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 um, is impoverished of new ideas. Then uh, Hollywood should come and buy this book because it's full of ideas. It is, and that, and that one I, I've never seen the um, the food of the gods, the artwork, and it's just the artwork is breathtaking. You know, again, Ray's such a creative genius, and you and you can see it, and you just wish you would have been able to see that project um, out there. But then again, as you said earlier, what would we have to have sacrificed? And of course, I think every Harryhausen fan would say, "No, I don't want to sacrifice anything that we've seen. <laughs> we only want more." And, and he, he can only do so much. That's why I think the, one of my, uh, if I had to pick two films from your, your book or two ideas that I would love to have seen, it would both be ones that happened after Clash of the Titans because the beauty of it is I wouldn't be replacing anything else. And that would have been Sinbad Goes to Mars and Force of the Trojans. If I had to pick from the works, those would be either one of those two or both of them because I love all the Sinbad movies and of course, I love Clash of the Titans. I mean, when it came out, I, was, I know a lot of people didn't like Bilbo. I saw it. I was, I enjoyed it. I, I, a lot of the films you mentioned are ones I enjoy also. And I, I think uh, just because of where you hit films at a certain age, you're able to enjoy it. And I think that's the key thing with a lot of children. When they see Ray's work and they see the craft and the characters that he did. Cause I know a lot of people want to call monsters, but I always look at them as, as characters that are fantastical and, and it, it, you can just see the personalities in them. And I think children latch onto them. They're not looking at something and saying, Oh, that's not, that's not CGI. They're just enjoying the story and in the ride. That's right. We have screenings of the films now for family audiences, for people who, who don't know, or maybe don't even care who Ray Harryhausen is. And, you know, the, the film will start with its Clash of the Titans and, and so on. And they'll just be enthralled by the story. And they'll be scared, you know, genuinely scared when Medusa comes on and uh, horrified when she's beheaded really violently. Um, so, no, you know, I think it's stories work. And it's a testament to the fact that, you know, some of these films that we're talking about that we have seen are, are years old, you know, 50 years old in some cases. And yet people are shelling out money again. They want to buy the, the new versions, the 4K and so on. And, and with the book, you know, it's been selling really well. So, um, you know, people are fascinated to, to see what could have been and what maybe should have been. And who knows, uh, Stephen, with your help and everyone else is out there, maybe what will be to come in the future. I hope, again, I hope so. And um, the final question, the two-parter for you, out of the, the movies that are in the book, which one or projects, which one do you think Ray would have loved to have done? And which one would you have loved to have seen Ray do? I would have liked, Ray would have liked to have seen Force of the Trojans. And it's the one we have the most development material for. And it's the one I think commercially would, would work best. 
because it comes on the heels of Clash of the Titans. I'd like to see Sinbad Goes to Mars because the artwork in that, some of which was finished just for this book, is absolutely sensational um, by Chris Foss under sort of Ray's direction. And Ray thought the story was too fantastical at the time and the way in which Sinbad finds himself on Mars might be too unbelievable. Years later, of course, the exact same technique for transporting Sinbad to Mars uh, transported James Spader and Kurt Russell in Stargate. So I think, you know, if we think Stargate when we think Sinbad goes to Mars, I think that has real potential. That does. I, I've never thought of it that way, you know, like with the Stargate part. And uh, it, it's kind of funny. You picked the one uh, out of the two films I talked about. Ray was one and you were the other. So it's kind of, you know, I think we're all thinking along the same lines it, and, and looking at it again in the time frame, because I don't want to sacrifice anything, any of the works that he had done prior, because that would just, I mean, how could you, I mean, how would you be able to pick one to say, oh, not this one? It, it's, it's, oh, I, I couldn't do that. Well, it's like Sophie's Choice, isn't it? It's a tough one. How do you choose your favorite child? You know, and then in some ways, that's how Ray viewed these films. They were his children, you know. But people can contact us and they can find out more on uh, rayharryhausen.com. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and as you say, we have a podcast. And I'm contactable through those those links as well. And the book is available on Amazon and pretty much, I think, every normal book, anywhere you can get books. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. So, you know, you can get it at all, um, all US bookstores and, uh, and UK bookstores have it. So it, they'll have at least one or two on their shelves. And the Forbidden Planet in London has signed copies. I've been signing copies. Um, so there are signed copies to be had there as well. But they do tell me that this first edition is selling out quite fast. So, um, you know, get your orders in before Christmas if possible. And again, if you have a Harryhausen fan, it's, that you're buying Christmas present for. This is a very, this is a very affordable book, exact for the material you're getting. I mean, it's, I've enjoyed it, and um, I can highly, highly, highly recommend it. And John, thank you for your time to do this interview with us to talk about Ray Harryhausen and your film work. Not at all. It's my pleasure, Stephen. Best of luck with, uh, with the uh, with the podcast, and uh, let's look forward to seeing uh, Ray Harryhausen back on the silver screen very soon. Great. Okay, listeners, talk to you later. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this interview my dad did with John Walsh. We hope you all enjoyed it just as much as we did. Please remember to give us feedback, and don't forget you can follow us at Diecast Movie Review Podcast on Facebook, and stick t- stay tuned and see which movie we'll pick next.